It's nice to see you. I'm glad you're here this morning uh, with us as we worship. And if you're joining us online, we're so glad you're here. Um, We are in a series about kings and queens of the Bible and what we have to learn from them. And just to get us, you know, loosened up a little bit this morning before I jump in, I have a little uh, Christmas trivia here for you. I want to show some pictures on the screen, and I want you to tell me what they have in common. Okay. If we, yeah, here we go. Okay. You guys know who these people are? The Grinch. And I had to get his name right. Scott Farkas. Okay. Keep going. Anybody know this guy's name? Who was at Christmas trivia at the Christmas party? Bumble. Yes. And who's the other guy? Mr. Potter. Thank you, Paul. Okay, go ahead. Scrooge and Harry and Marv. Yes, what do these things have in common? Yes, they're the bad guys of Christmas. These, well, there's more, but these are my favorite bad guys of Christmas. And today in our crowned series, I'm going to be talking about another bad guy of Christmas, and it's King Herod. He is the uh, kind of the monster of Christmas or the Christmas story in scripture. Um, And like Brent said last week, I begged him for for Esther. I'm like, I want to preach on Esther. He's like, you get Herod. So here I am preaching just to get us in the spirit, Christmas spirit. We're talking about the bad guy of Christmas, King Herod. He was the king of Judea um, from 37 BC to 4 BC. So he had a 33 year reign. And his reign is important, especially at this time of year, or we think about it at this time of year, because it intersects with baby Jesus. It intersects with um, the birth of Jesus and Christmas. So I'm going to just kind of tell you his story this morning, okay? So we'll begin with um, Herod as king. Jesus has been born, um, and some magi had come to visit Herod, and they were saying to him, hey, we heard about this baby, this king of the Jews that was born. And we saw the star. We want to go follow it. And we want to worship him. Do you know where that is? And you can imagine the king um, of Judea is like, excuse me, who is this king of the Jews that you're talking about? You know, and I want to know uh, who this guy is too. And so he calls his religious leader friends and gets the dish. Like, who is this guy? Is this true? where would he be born? And they're like, oh yes, there's a prophecy about this in Micah. In Matthew 2, uh, verse 5, it says, in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, that's where he is. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly, and found out from the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him, which we know is obviously not the case. He does not want to worship this uh, king, this baby king. And so they go to Bethlehem, the Magi carry on their way. They go to Bethlehem, they follow the star and they find, I wanna say baby Jesus, but if you were around years ago when Brent debunked 
our whole idea of the Magi and baby Jesus, they didn't come till later. So he was like toddler Jesus. So they find toddler Jesus and they worship him and they give gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And they'd been warned in a dream while they were there um, to not go back to Herod, that he was uh, dangerous. And so they took another route home. And the story continues on in verse 13. It says, when they'd gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. For Herod is gonna search for the child to kill him. So he got up, he took the child and his mother during the night and he left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. So, these guys ghosted Herod, and a dream has happened uh, with Joseph, and Joseph has fled. And now, it says, when Herod realized that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he'd learned from the Magi. I have always been disturbed by this part of the Christmas story. There's this beautiful story of Jesus' birth, and then later on you get this story of this king. What kind of king wants to, is threatened by a toddler? I was laughing this morning. We, Matthew and I were getting ready, and I'm like, we have a, a little older toddler in our house, but he was in a fight with his sister, and he said, he said to her, don't do that or I'll toot on your face. <laughs> like, that's what toddlers do. And this guy is threatened by a toddler, right? He's like, this, who is this king, this toddler king, right? It seems crazy. What kind of king would be threatened by a toddler? So that's what I want to do this morning is explore this king, Herod. He's an interesting guy um, with a lot of issues here. So the first one is that he is a lover of power, and Herod was um, raised in a, a powerful home. His dad was a high-ranking guy under Julius Caesar, and his mom was an Arabian princess. So he had um, kind of been born into power and privilege and raised up in that. And so he had a hunger or a desire for power for a long time. And uh, he continually kind of moved up the ranks and eventually persuaded Caesar Augustus to make him king of Judea, which was kind of a crazy, bold move. But Caesar Augustus makes Herod this king of Judea, and now he's in this position. He's the king of the Jews, and he's like, this is what I've always wanted. You know, this power-hungry man is now in this position of power. But immediately, he's met with limitations because, interestingly enough, Herod is not Jewish. Like I said, his dad was um, an Edomite, and his mom was from Petra. And so there was not Jewish, he was not Jewish, his family was not ethnically Jewish, um, though they had converted to Judaism. And so they were familiar with all the Jew, uh, Jewish customs, they were familiar with the Jewish religion. Um, and so he would have been familiar and practicing all those things. But he knew, deep down he knew, and the people knew that he was not actually Jewish. And so already he had this feeling of like, I'm not enough. Or I have this, he had this feeling of weakness or insecurity in his identity as he took this, this position as king. And people questioned his legitimacy. 
his authority. And so as a king who's craving power and he wants to gain legitimacy and authority and feels like he doesn't have it, he makes a few key moves that are a little disturbing. And these are things that earn, that he want, ways that he wants to earn the favor of the Jewish people. So the first thing that he does is he marries a Jewish woman. And it's not for love, it's not for partnership and commitment. He marries this Jewish woman, Miriam, because he wants to be more Jewish, right? He wants to gain favor and credibility among the Jewish people. And soon after that, he starts his reign real strong. Soon after that, he starts killing people off. So he, there are key leaders that are in opposition to him that are like, we shouldn't, he should not be our king. He's not Jewish. And he just simply has them killed. And he continues to do this during his whole reign. There's crazy stories like um, his wife's brother, so his brother-in-law, he appointed as high priest. And as he took this position, he was growing up and he was becoming this handsome man, gregarious and like great with people and he was popular and Herod gets jealous of his brother-in-law that he's appointed and so what does he do he has him drowned and then he does this with his own sons he has three sons and each of them at some point gains grows in their ranks gains leadership gains popularity and they become a threat to Herod and he kills he has his own sons killed because of the threat to his leadership And then finally, he has his own wife murdered because, of course, she's a threat to his leadership as well. And of course, this is making a statement to people, or he thinks it's making a statement to people like, I am powerful, I do have the authority, don't mess with me. And you can just see, as as I was reading and understanding Herod's story, I was like, oh, you just see this grasp for power, this craving of power and this desire to be seen, not just have it, but to be seen. He wanted to be seen as powerful and seen as mighty. He was obsessed with being seen and known as rich and successful and wealthy and and mighty. And he did some of the most ostentatious things. He was always kind of over the top in his efforts um, to prove that he was king and that he was a wealthy, powerful, mighty king. He longed to be admired and seen. And I'm saying all these terrible things, but there were some great things that he did. It made me think of a few weeks ago as Brent was um, preaching about King David and how, you know, it seems like most of these kings have a, they have these kind of terrible qualities. There's a lot of just sin and brokenness and and, um, awful things that happen under the rule of many of these kings. But there's also, it's complicated because there's also good Um, and wonderful things that come from these kings. And so if there was a good thing to choose about King Herod, it's just his smarts. He's brilliant. He's very skilled. He has this mind for engineering and infrastructure. And because of that, he started all these building projects all over. Um, And you know what those did? They brought economic flourishing, or they brought economic stability in the way they hadn't had it before. And so there was something good about his skills and his ability to get things done and, uh, and the, um, the kind of engineering, the infrastructure mind that he had. And what he's most known for, if you think about Herod, the thing he's most known for is rebuilding the temple, the, uh, Solomon's temple. He rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. And of course, he couldn't just rebuild it. He made it bigger and he made it better and more impressive than the time before. Here's a model of 
um, what the second temple that Herod had rebuilt would have looked like. It's not too shabby. And there it is. Again, he did not do this, though, because like, oh, I love the Jews. I want them to have their temple to worship in. Why do you think he did this? Again, to win favor to, to, for optics, right? He wants folks to think that he is for them, that he is a good king. But he also rebuilt the water system for Judea, which was also amazing. I was watching all these videos about him. Like, again, creating economic stability for these folks and flourishing, um, but also self-serving because it would, it would have been used for you know, the water for ceremonies and things in the temple and water for people's thriving. But also, he was about to build himself a palace. Here's a picture of his palace. See all those little blue things? Um, those are pools that he wanted to fill with the water from the water system that he'd created. So he, the mo- most fascinating thing to me about Herod is, um, and Br- I should have Brent up here because he was just in this area. Um, so there's two fortresses kind of side by side that he built. One is Masada, where Brent was and, and roamed around and took pictures and prayed and saw all, of the, all that's there and all that's not there, all that's not left. And then on the other side was this palace and this fortress that he built for himself and his family. Um, and this is what they would have called the Herodian. So this, I mean, can you believe that? Just look, that's a model. Uh, I mean, how wild is that? So this place was 45, it was 45 acres of just buildings. And then it was 200 acres of palace grounds. There were like three pools um, that were Olympic size. And in a, um, I was really geeking out this week and watching all these videos. There's this guy named Ray Vanderland and he is like, given his whole life to going in and, um, and giving tours of the Holy Land. And so I'm watching these videos and what? I mean, this stuff is crazy. They were, they were saying that they approximated the amount of water that it would have taken just to fill the pools in his uh, fortress in the Herodian was like 3 million gallons of water in the desert. I mean, does that just tell you how how not right, <laughs> Herod was, you know, you, you live in the desert and you've created something that requires three uh, million gallons of water. Um, and this place is fascinating to me. I think the most fascinating thing about the Herodian is that when he went to build this palace for himself and this fortress, it was not mountainous in this region, it's the desert, and he wanted to be seen he wanted the palace to be seen. He wanted the, the, the fortress to be clear to people. This was his, his place. This was him. You know, this was like a physical representation of all the power and might and everything that he desperately wanted. And so this is wild. He had like a thousand guys build him a mountain. So these guys literally moved the earth, moved land. I mean, how long? I don't even, can't imagine how long that would take and they made, they made a man-made mountain for Herod. And once the mountain was done, then he began to build this palace. And that tells you again, I mean, what a, what a human he was in all of his mess. And so this Herodian, this, this fortress, this palace for his family that was so large and so visible so such a massive structure in height 
and uh, width and territory that it, um, in, in watching these videos as they walked through to show kind of the scale of the Herodian, they were like, literally the surrounding villages literally were in the shadow of the Herodian. So they literally lived in the shadow of this palace. And then, it doesn't stop there. So the final thing that I have to tell you about Herod is that not only is he this power-hungry, narcissistic, kind of insecure man who's just grasping for power, he's threatened by everything. You think his evil would end there, but he gets very, very sick and, um, and is kind of emaciated and wasting away. And in his sickness at the end of the li- his life, he suffered. Um, but his final request was to his sister, Salome, and he talked to her and he shared his plans. I want you to, um, you know, I want this palace or I want, I want um, parades around the palace. I want all these things for my funeral, like all the pomp and circumstance. And then he said, and here's a list of kind of key, important, very beloved leaders of the Jewish people. I want you to gather them up and I want you to keep hold of them. And when I die, I want you to kill them. And the reason he told her to do this is because he said, if they won't mourn for me because I'm, they're not gonna mourn for me because they don't love me, they'll mourn for all these other people and people will hear the weeping, people will hear the mourning and they'll think it's for me. Can you imagine just the level of evil uh, in this man? I cannot imagine a king worse than Herod. So what do we learn from Herod's kingship? That's what I kept saying this week. I'm like, oh, what is here for me? What's here for us? You know, Herod is the monster of Christmas. Like there's nothing good here because I don't see myself in Herod. I don't see you all in Herod. I don't relate to that. But then as I listened, asked God to speak more, I kept thinking, And I think that a lot of what drove Herod is not that far off from the culture that we live in. We live in a place that really values power. And not not power that comes from humility and vulnerability, but power that's like, I will, I am, I will rule, I will reign. You know, we live in a place where might is right where protection is key at every turn. We live in a culture where optics, like I'm stunned by, I think what I was most stunned by with Herod is not just that he craved power so badly. He didn't even care if he actually had the power. He wanted people to see him as powerful. That kind of optics, like the visibility that people are desperate for, like I want people to see something that isn't there, I'm like, oh, that feels like American culture to me so much, right? I've, I am like, I scroll my Instagram all the time, but it is, like, it is full of, look at me. I'm putting on this kind of image of this is who I am, but we all know that's not who you actually are, right? We are obsessed with looking a certain way or this, this optic, this kind of idea of like, I look fine, or I look wealthy, 
or I look put together, we're not that far off. We may not be Herods, but I think we're comfortable, more comfortable than we would like to admit with Herod's kind of kingdom. With power and prestige and economic success as our first priority and protection and prosperity at the sake of other people, threatened by the other or threatened by anything that challenges us too deeply. In message community, on Monday mornings, we, a group of us meet and we talk about the message and pray and listen to each other and look at the scripture. And we were just wrestling with Herod, King Herod, what do we learn from him? And Steve used the word empire. And I think that's what I'm seeing in Herod is this, this kind of empire, this model of empire. And I think it still stands today. We still live in this world of like empire, of conquest and domination and big and impressive and mighty. It's so strong in humans. Isn't that interesting? I mean, think about how long ago this was in a whole different part of the world and still we have this desire to be empire, to live with an empire mindset. So I did a little contrast of kind of this empire mindset versus the kingdom of God. In the empire kind of mindset, or this Herod, excuse me, Herod kind of mindset, we see power as the number one priority. In the kingdom of God, in the kingdom mindset, we see vulnerability as the number one priority. And I was saying to Matthew this week, I'm like, actually, we do have power. <laughs> as followers of Jesus, we have a, all the power and authority in Jesus' name but it comes from a place of humility and vulnerability. We see in the empire that greed is the factor that pushes, pushes people. And in the kingdom, generosity is like, here, I have these, I've been freely given to, I'm gonna freely give. And I've seen that in so many of you over the last few weeks, just all the different ways that you're helping and serving in our community. And, and I ask for things and you say, yeah, what else can I do? How many more backpacks for Joppa can I make? How, you know, how are we doing on food for DMARC, for the food pantry? In the empire, dominance is the priority. Dominance is the value. And in the kingdom of God, humility is the value. You can do, go to the next list. In the empire kind of mindset, conquest is the goal. Like, let's, let's take over. That is what empire is. Like, we, you know, there's a power and might and conquest. And in the kingdom, Jesus invites us to surrender, to surrender our stuff and ourselves and our will. In the empire kind of thinking, superiority is the goal, like you gotta be, you gotta be a somebody over, you know, and there's gotta be hierarchies all the way. And in the kingdom of God, there's solidarity. People have different roles, but together we, we do something. There's solidarity together. And finally, in the empire, it feels like it's all about control. And in the kingdom of God, it's all about freedom. God gives us freedom and longs for us to have freedom. And so in message community this week, I was wrestling and just taking notes and thinking about, oh, what, it, you know, what can I say? What's my list? That kind of thing. And then I just started crying. Not unusual. And, and I was just asking, 
Why do we relate to empire thinking instead of kingdom thinking? Why is that in me? You know, why do I resonate with that? Even though I think it's evil in some ways, you know? It's not fully evil, but when that becomes the way I, I pursue things, why is that? And I began to ask myself, and I asked us in the room this question, is it because we are more American than we are Christian? Is it because we are more empire than kingdom of God? And please hear me correctly. I'm not saying America is bad. I love America. I'm not anti-America. But America is not the kingdom of God. And I fear that we are more influenced by the culture around us. I see it in myself, that's why I say this. You know, if, you can't, if you're like, this is not me, cool. I'm preaching to myself. Like, I am more influenced by the culture around me and the values of the culture in the country where I'm raised, in the world that I'm raised in, than what is actually within me. I am more influenced by the outside empire than I am by the kingdom of God that lives in me. And I'm continually asking God, oh, root that out, root that out. I wanna be more like you, Jesus. I wanna follow you, Jesus. And, I, and it will look very, very, very different than the world around me. I fear that we are more comfortable with power than we are with meekness, more familiar with optics than we are with honesty, and we more easily measure success based on big budgets and building projects than with humble integrity and faithfulness. And it's interesting because Herod's thing was all about building, all about these erecting these buildings and monuments in his honor, in his name. And later on in Matthew, Jesus is doing ministry on earth and he's walking with his disciples and they're showing him the temple that Herod rebuilt. And they're like, look, look at this temple, you know, and all the, all the pieces of it. And you know what Jesus said in Matthew 24, one through two? Jesus left the temple and he was walking away when his disciples came up to call his attention to the buildings. Do you see all these things, he said? Truly I tell you that not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be torn down. Matthew 6, says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Right here in Matthew 6, Jesus is addressing with the Pharisees, much like he does with us, they're obsessing over the wrong things. They're obsessed about being seen as giving, you know? He's like, when you give, don't tell everyone. They're obsessed about being seen as religious. And he's like, when you pray, you don't go pray in front of everyone. Don't build these giant monuments to yourself and all the good things you do. Instead, seek first my kingdom. And as you do that, all the things that you actually long for will be given to you. The antidote to Herod and empire thinking is actually understanding what we already have in Jesus. Herod is forever grasping for this power and admiration when actually he already had it. He had the position, he had the family, he had the authority, right? But he just had this insatiable hunger for bigger and better and more. 
So what do we already have? Well, let me tell you this morning, if you don't remember, let me remind you, as I reminded myself this week, what do we already have in Jesus? We are sons and daughters of the king. We're citizens of the kingdom. We're loved, we're forgiven. We have experienced the promise of redemption. We've experienced resurrection. We will experience resurrection. We have abundant life on earth and eternal life with Jesus. And from that place of knowing who we are and what we've been given, we get to live that kingdom list. (laughs) We get to live vulnerable, humble lives, surrendered to Jesus in solidarity with one another, giving generously and experiencing freedom. And so I would encourage you, as I did this week and will continue to do, because man, Christmas really brings out empire. Even Pearl, like this week, is just like, and this is what I want, and also this, and I did circle all these things, and I was like, wait, let's talk about, what if we go shopping this week for this family that, you know, we're going to help in the holidays? Like, oh, okay, yeah, that'll be good. So reflect, would you reflect this week, where do you see this in your life? Does your reflect, does your life reflect in your decisions and The way you live, does it reflect Herod and this kind of empire thinking? Or does it reflect the kingdom of God? And I want to close with this one story because this was a a personal conviction of uh, just a story um, this week that even God brought up in me. So a few weeks ago, we had a one worship service in here. It was so fun. And um, we had tables set up and we had worship. And because it was one worship, I had thought, you know what would be fun? I see all these um, young adults, all these um, youth in the crowd who, are, who love to worship. Let's bring them on stage for a song and let them worship on stage and, and you see them and they see you. And, and so we had Brooklyn and Francis and we had Jenny and Jesse and Jasmine. We had... Uh, kids up here worshiping and leading with us, and it was so beautiful and so fun. And I could see even in worship that people were touched by it. It was like, oh, this is the kingdom of God. And then the song was over, and um, that first song was over, and the kids' instruction was to go sit down, and then we would, the, the adults would lead the rest of the worship, you know, properly. And after that first song, we had some prayer time, and then Um, Francis, I'm going to talk about you. (laughs) So if you don't know Francis, Francis um, is a worshiper, and he loves to worship. And so he came back up, and that wasn't the plan. And he stood right in front of Noel, who was singing, and and, um, he was just worshiping. And this is a moment of honesty. I was like, what do we do? Like, this is not the plan. I value control. I value um, things being neat and tidy. I value order. I value the plan. You know, I value, I value the proper musicians playing and leading worship, you know. All these things were coming up in me like, oh, I need to take control of this situation. I'm the leader here. I need to take control of this. And I thought, should I? I was really thinking, maybe I need to go take Francis back down to the seats and, you know, have him sit down. And I felt at that moment the Lord rebuke me and I started crying and he said, let him lead. 
Because the kingdom of God is not empire. The kingdom of God is led from the margins and the marginalized. The kingdom of God was born in the literal shadow of Herod's empire. All these little villages around the Herodian, one of those was Bethlehem. The kingdom of God was born in the literal shadow of the empire in that tiny village of Bethlehem with a tiny infant, King Jesus. Jesus. 